Father God, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear from you? This is another one of those commandments that really, if we reflect on it, it pierces to the heart of every one of us. And so God, teach us this morning and our objective in looking at these commands, God, is we, we don't believe for a second that we relate to you or have a relationship with you by keeping the commandments. We just know that because you have loved us and chosen us and saved us and brought us into your family, adopted us as your children, because of that, one of the ways we honor you, a chief way we honor you is by doing the things you ask us to do and not doing the things you tell us not to. So help us to grow in becoming more like Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Well, uh, just an observation, one you might not expect given what I've already said. And this would be the observation. Our God, as great and good as he is, our, our God is 100% pro-sex. Did you, did you see that coming? Yeah. <laughs> In spite of all you may have heard, our God, our holy God, the author of the Ten Commandments, uh, is creator and maker of this thing we call sex. Now, how do I know that about God? Uh, well, the Bible tells me so. That's how I know. You only have to read the first few chapters of the book of the Bible of Genesis, the opening book of the Bible, to find out kind of how God feels about sex. In Genesis 1 through 3, we're told that God creates us to be sexual creatures, psychologically, physiologically, you know, biologically, neurologically, human beings are sexual creatures. God intended for it to be that way. The sexual dimension of human personality wasn't just an afterthought on God's part. It wasn't the result of evil or Adam and Eve's rebellion or fall into sin. God designed us to be sexual creatures. He made us male and female. He intended there to be an attraction between the sexes. Um, I always get a kick out of reflecting on the early chapters of Genesis, uh, imagining Adam's response when God first presented Eve to him. You remember in Genesis 2, we read that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Those words get repeated over and over, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, how he would identify them, you see. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, here it is again, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God creates Adam 
Adam is, it seems, by himself. I get the impression maybe, too, as he's going through this process of naming the animals, that he might have been a little lonely of sorts. Because, no, because Adam, uh, for him, no suitable helper was found. As he's naming the animals, he's not finding any of them particularly that interesting. They're not suitable for close companionship. I mean, pets, sure, but not close companionship. And so God announces to Adam that he's going to create a companion suitable for him. And I imagine that Adam just can't wait to see what God is going to create. Uh, Remember, he doesn't know what God is about to make at this particular point. He only knows that anything will be better than all the animals he's just named. Because as great as they are, they're not suitable for him. And so God puts Adam to sleep and out of Adam's side, it's interesting, he doesn't make another interesting animal. God could have. I mean, he's infinitely wise and what a genius creator. Uh, He doesn't make another man either. He makes a woman. Isha means out of man. Adam is Ish, woman is Isha. Eve is made from man. Eve is Adam's suitable helper and perfectly complements Adam. Perfectly. Adam and Eve can now fulfill the purpose, one of them, uh, one of the main ones for which they were actually created. We read in Genesis chapter 1 a little earlier, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. There you have it. You see, if God had made Adam another Adam, uh, they could not have fulfilled the purpose for which God was even making them, which was to be fruitful and to increase and to multiply. And so God made the, the Adam, Ish, a woman, Isha. And the first marriage is made. The first marriage is constituted. According to the Bible, marriage only makes sense in the context of a man-woman relationship and the two becoming one. And so God makes Eve uh, from Adam's side. He breathes uh, into Eve the breath of life. And Adam wakes up. And remember, he has never seen a woman before. And all of a sudden, he opens his eyes. And he sees Eve for the first time. And here's this creature maybe long hair, shapely curves, beautiful eyes, and naked to boot. (laughs) What is Adam's response, do you think? Well, the Bible doesn't really give us a whole lot of information here, but Adam does say, this is, and I think he said it this way, I don't know this, I don't know this. But I mean, you know, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of man. You think Adam was excited? I think he was. Thank you, God. Finally, finally, after naming all these other animals, here is my my true partner, my true helper, somebody with whom I can talk and laugh and dream and cry. And God, we just fit perfectly together. Thank you, Lord. We can tell from Scripture, too, there was an attraction because it we don't know how long, but it perhaps wasn't terribly long, maybe nine months before they had a child. There was attraction. God is pro-sex, friends. Sexual attraction, sexual activity. These are God's gifts to a husband and wife, to a marriage. 
Uh, sex was not something God decided to allow just in order to populate the earth, although make no mistake, that was certainly one of the big reasons. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 actually tells us that one of the things God normally, ordinarily, now in a fallen word, there's a lot of things that aren't normal. A lot of things that don't ordinarily happen that we'd love to see happen. And that is the case, of course, for, for many. But normally, God wants to, to see from a marriage union godly offspring. That's what Malachi 2.15 tells us. That's one of the purposes of marriage. But having said that, sex is also an act that is meant to be an avenue of intensely intimate, personal, pleasurable communication. God's pro-intimacy. God is pro-pleasurable communication. He was, he always has been. C.S. Lewis reminds us that, you know, pleasure after all is God's invention, not Satan's. Think on that. It's God's invention, this thing of pleasure, sexual pleasure in particular. Uh, Now, I've got a second observation. And that is just this, that not only is God pro-sex, but actually all of the Bible is really a pro-sex book. Books like Song of Solomon describe the romantic, sexual, erotic attraction of two lovers who are getting married, becoming husband and wife. And Jewish interpreters have for centuries read this book as in kind of an allegory of God's love for Israel. Now, Christian interpreters that came centuries later have understood the book as a very beautiful picture of the love between a young man and a young woman who are getting married, but also as an allegory of Jesus' love for the church. Sexual intimacy, sexual attraction, deep intimacy and communication between these two. It's part of that love, you see. Paul in the New Testament commands husbands and wives to engage in sexual relations regularly. That's what he tells husbands and wives to do. In fact, he says, do not deprive one another sexually in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Guys, you want to memorize memorize that verse. Goes on to say, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's the only circumstance under which married couples should deprive each other of sexual relations. The the scriptures and God himself are pro-sex. Now, I'm saying this because I want us to see that sex and sexual attraction, these things are not embarrassing. They're not shameful. They're not bad. They're not. They're not foreign to our faith, right? Uh, They actually belong in our faith. Uh, They're actually created by our God for our good, for our multiplication, for our enjoyment, for our satisfaction. Now, having said all of that, I must also say that what God has created to be a beautiful thing, a blessing to married couples, has since the entrance of sin into the world been pretty messed up and pretty corrupted, even perverted. Uh, The very experience that God created to bind a man and a woman together as one flesh can now tear people and families apart and do all the time. Now this very thing, it it can destroy a human being when they come uh, in bondage to uh, perverted or sinful sex. They, They can now scar children for a lifetime. And this is precisely why God laid down or gave us the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment encompasses three 
major sexual perversions. One, of course, is adultery, obviously. But another is fornication and another is lust. And I want to talk briefly about all three of these. It says, you shall not commit adultery. That's the command. Now, if you want to reverse that and kind of put it positively, the seventh commandment is saying that the the full spectrum of sexual pleasure intended for us to enjoy by God must only be shared with our husband or our wife. In other words, in the context of marriage. And there are many reasons for that. There really are. There's lots of reasons. One of them is just that sex is very, very risky, risky business. At no time is a man or woman more vulnerable than when they lie naked together on a bed, exposing themselves physically, emotionally, you know, psychologically. They are exposing themselves to the possibility of rejection, the possibility of a scorn, uh, the masks that we wear, and we all do wear them, rightly, wrongly, the masks that we wear to protect ourselves in the outside world, those masks are taken off in the context of a bedroom, in a sexual context. Sex is risky business. And that's why, in part, God commands that all sexual activity be confined to marriage relationships, where a covenant Promises have been made. Vows have been taken. And there's this lifelong commitment to one another. There's a permanence, in other words, of relationship where anxiety and fear and risk of rejection can slowly be overcome by things like trust and faithfulness and sacrificial love. That's something you're going to hear me mention multiple times this morning, sacrificial love. That's what marriage is all about. That's the essence of healthy marriage. More of that later. Now, this all matters very much because there is so much more to sex than just intercourse. So much more. Good, meaningful, fulfilling sex requires things like good communication, a good problem-solving techniques, a total devotion to each other, to loving that other person, trust in one another, respect for one another, good sense of humor, really always, but especially as you get older. Am I right? Yeah, you know. And I'll tell you what, all those things take time to develop. They all do. Basically, hear me on this. I think the level of physical pleasure in a marriage is usually directly proportional to the quality of the relationship as a whole. Let me say that again. The level of physical pleasure in a marriage is usually directly proportional to the quality of the relationship as a whole. Counselors will tell you all the time that sex is really, it's just a barometer for measuring how the relationship is overall. If your sexual relationship is not what it should be, it probably is due to things like bad communication or poor problem-solving habits or growing resentments that aren't getting, you know, repented of and forgiven and mistrust and disloyalty and lack of respect. But when all those factors and others too are healthy, well, then, then often there is a highly satisfactory sexual relationship as well. Friends, God has given sex to married couples as a means of growing intimacy, growing trust, learning what it means to love sacrificially. Sex is a way of giving pleasure to someone that you are supposed to love and be learning to love sacrificially. Sacrificially. 
Now, against that backdrop, consider why adultery is such a serious matter. When a man or woman commits adultery, they're not just breaking uh, an oath, a covenant, a promise. They are doing that. But as they do that, they're also betraying a person. You see, it's not really an act of intercourse that is so destructive about adultery. That's not the essence of it. It's, it's the deceitfulness. It's the lying. It's the disloyalty. It's the betrayal that so shatters the offended spouse. And that's why you hear the offended spouse always say things like this. How could you do this to me? That's interesting, actually, because technically nothing was done to them. Sex happened to someone else, unfortunately. And yet the wounded spouse will always speak or always ask the question, how could you do this to me? What they're saying is, you have deceived me, you have lied to me, you have betrayed me. And that's where the pain and the agony come in. And I've sat with folks who've gone through this kind of ordeal. And to be honest with you, sometimes I've just wondered in the moment if it wouldn't be easier for people to grieve over the death of a loved one rather than betrayal by them. And betrayals like this, if we're being honest, can often take years to rebuild or to fix or to move beyond. And when a marriage is broken by an adulterous behavior, everybody loses, everybody suffers, everybody is scarred by it. And if adultery leads to divorce, which it very often does, the pain and the scars can last in a person's life for a lifetime. Friends, our God wants to spare us from that kind of thing, that kind of pain. God doesn't want any of us to ever have to experience the agony, the heartbreak, the disillusion that comes with adultery. God wants our marriages to flourish to be free from uh, the pain of all that kind of thing. And he wants sex to be a beautiful tool for the building up of our marriages, not a weapon to wipe them out. And that's why God has given us the seventh commandment. Now, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus and uh, if God leads you to marry, if you're not married already, uh, well, then marry as the apostle Paul tells us we must marry. Marry in the Lord, he says. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Marry in the Lord. Marry a, a man or a woman who is, is following Jesus Christ. Uh, build your life on what Jesus Christ tells you about yourself and about your marriage and about this world and, and about how to fix the problems in yourself and in your marriage and, and in this world. Follow biblical guidelines for growing your marriage. Learn what it means to be self-sacrificing like Jesus is for you. Learn to engage your partner emotionally and spiritually and physically and sexually so that your relationship flourishes even in the midst of life's trials. Guard your marriage by avoiding relationships which could, which could lead you to temptation and lead you to things like adultery. Know yourself, know your limitations. Throughout the years of my ministry, I've deliberately avoided putting myself in situations where for me temptations existed. I wanted to stay away from what I knew would destroy me and destroy my marriage and destroy my relationship with God. 
In the very early years of our church, the first few years of launching this thing called Deer Creek Church, I had a young woman uh, who I'd been doing some ministry with, her and others, actually putting together a, a marriage retreat of all things. And we got back from that retreat and this woman called me up and told me she was in love with me. I mean, we can see why. <laughs> she told me she was in love with me and she wanted to meet. Do you know how that affected me? That was intoxicating. That was intoxicating. So you know what I did? I called Holly, my wife. And Holly said, oh yeah, I could see that coming. <laughs> she could, I didn't. And I called a friend. And I described the whole situation to him as well. And talking to Holly and talking to that friend kind of de-intoxicated me, detoxified me. That helped me navigate and avoid something like the temptation of adultery. It's important you take steps immediately if you face a temptation like that, that you do something that brings that out into the open and exposes that temptation and gets you the kind of help, support, accountability that you need. That is vitally, vitally important. Now, it's also important that we say, like we've said on others of these commandments, that adultery is not the unpardonable sin. Some of you may have committed adultery in your past. You may be feeling pretty guilty right now and thinking, man, why did we come to church this morning? Uh, you may be seated next to a spouse who you've betrayed or who's betrayed you. And you're just feeling not so good. Well, listen, there, there is no need for you to live in guilt or live in shame. You need to realize that God's grace is, of course, as we've said many times before, bigger than your sin. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us all from any of our sins, even the sin of adultery. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can be forgiven. And if God can forgive you, he can help you rebuild trust in your marriage, rebuild the commitment that you need in your marriage. He can help your spouse to get to a place where he or she forgives you. I've seen him do exactly that in more than one marriage. And when that happens, it is a beautiful picture of how the gospel of Jesus Christ brings life back from the dead. Now, yeah, admittedly, that can take a lot of work, a lot of counseling sometimes, a lot of repenting, a lot of forgiving, a lot of communication, a lot of dying to self. But all those things done in the power and with the help of Jesus and his spirit can rebuild a marriage, a marriage that's been broken, badly broken. Now, the Bible says, you shall not commit adultery. <laughs> to my amazement, I've actually had this conversation more than once. I have heard Christians, usually Christian men, make the claim that the only sexual prohibition in the Bible is adultery. Therefore, non-married people are free to engage in sexual relations so long as their partner is willing, willing to cooperate, so long as their partner is not married. Well, I think you'd have to admit that you haven't dug real deeply uh, into the Bible to get clear on this matter because you wouldn't have to read very far uh, to come across passages like this. 
Uh, For from within, out of the heart of man, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Or this from Paul, let us walk properly uh, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality. Or this from Paul, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They call themselves a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Or this, flee from sexual immorality. Or this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Or put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and he goes on to mention others. And my point is just, there, there are scores of verses throughout the Bible which categorically prohibit sexual immorality, which is any sex outside of marriage as it's defined in the Bible. Prostitution, bestiality, same-sex relationships, use of pornography, whatever. The Bible makes it clear that sexual activity is supposed to occur only within the safety and the security of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Bed hopping is beneath human dignity. It's not at all what God made sex for. It reduces men and women to the level of animals or even lower. Animals at least are primarily, not always, but primarily uh, having sex for the purpose of promulgation, multiplication. Human beings have always had a serious problem with making sex just a recreational sport. And when we do that, it takes all of the meaning out of sexual communication. Young people today are are faced with these issues at a very oppressing, oppressing level. The CDC, again, that organization we all know about now, tells us that today half of teenagers have sex before they graduate from high school. Half. That's peer pressure. Well, let's see, will I or won't I? What should I do? Well, let's see, half of the people I know already have. Wow. Now, you know, some would say, well, you you shouldn't have sex because you could get a socially transmitted disease. Uh, You could be emotionally scarred from that. You could get pregnant, pregnant. That's all true. It's just not very persuasive, is it? Not when it comes to guiding our teenagers. I found that from 2015 to 2017, 78% of young females, 89% of young males ages 15 to 24 said that they use a method of contraception every time they have sex. That's what they said. So what do we say to young people? Just don't do it. I mean, you know, what what do we say to them? That's not working. Well, I would say this, and it's a complicated answer, actually. It's, It's simple to say, but it's more complicated to actually pull off, and that is this. We need to teach our young people, people in a faith community, about marriage itself the richness of marriage you see god created this thing called marriage marriage is a covenant relationship a relationship built on promises made to each other promises that we fully intend to keep for a lifetime 
Uh, marriage is meant to bless us with a partner for life as we go through the ups and downs. And hopefully uh, your children are seeing you and your spouse go up and down together. That's a bad picture in a message like this. That's awful. Sorry. Um, Hopefully your children see you and your spouse navigating life's really tricky, difficult things in ways that are healthy, right? In ways where you're there to support each other, right when you need that kind of support. And they come to value it because they, they watch their mom and dad navigate all of those things together. Hopefully they, they see that, that marriage is a blessing, a blessing in terms of producing children. And that too has lots of challenges, doesn't it? But they watch mom and dad navigate that stuff together. Marriage blesses us, you see, with the opportunity to give ourselves fully to someone emotionally, give ourselves fully to someone spiritually as we grow together give ourselves fully to each other relationally. And that's, that's a tough thing to stay invested, to stay in the relationship, to keep trying to improve it. Uh, marriage blesses us with the opportunity to give ourselves fully to someone even sexually. That is what marriage is for. That is where sex should happen. Sex is so much more than, than recreation or than sport, so much more than just personal satisfaction. The point is, friends, our children need a more robust understanding of marriage and sex and how important it is. They need to see why God created them both and just how good both are. And they need to understand why the institution of marriage is so important to God to society, and even to them. They need to see marriages that survive and thrive through life's difficulties and enrich the lives of both the husband and the wife and the children they produce. That's what they need to see. Bottom line, they must understand how marriage is a proclamation of the gospel because that's actually what it is. An intimate relationship with Almighty God is being pictured in this thing of a marriage. It's like a dance. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he writes about marriage. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? Is, Christ, is your experience of Jesus that he's always looking you in the eye going, stop it. You piss me off. I don't like who you are and how you're acting. Is that the way Jesus does life with you? No. Furthest thing from it. So you see, Jesus is the head of the church, his body. He is himself its savior. Humbling himself, dying for the church. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just a moment later, speaking to husbands, Paul goes on to say, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Yeah, it is. It is, Paul. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, I'm not sure, if I'm being honest, of all the implications of some of Paul's commands here. But I know Paul wants wives to submit in everything to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. What does you submitting to Christ look like? Is it ugly? Is it harmful? Is it hurtful? Do you feel like you're submitting to someone who doesn't love you, doesn't care? Now, unfortunately, husbands are not Jesus, right? Wives, would you agree? (laughs) So if the husband is abusive, if the husband is immoral, if the husband is being an absolute fool, wives, don't be the fool in following him and submitting him in doing something that would dishonor God. Don't do it. Get counsel, get help. But those are matters for another sermon. The point is that Jesus and the church, they're a paradigm for marriage. The church loving Jesus and Jesus loving the church. Wives loving and respecting and submitting to their husbands. Husbands loving and laying down their lives for their wives. These are the things our children need to see more of. Here's what it's called. It's called sacrificial love going both ways, sacrificial love. And when they see that, maybe then they will start to understand that sex really, it's something beautiful, it's something special, it's a form of intimate and tender and sacrificial communication that is special for a marriage, a blessing meant to be a blessing for husbands and for wives. Not something as Hollywood incessantly suggests that sex is just for my personal, selfish pleasures and satisfaction. And you know, here's the thing too, it occurs to me, friends, you've got to decide. Jesus tells his followers, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he says. He's not kidding. He made you, he knows you, he knows what's best for you, for me. He, he loves us, he wants us to live lives that are fruitful, that are actually abundant lives, thriving kinds of lives. And, and if you are going to follow him, you'll have to decide who you love more, yourself, your culture, or Jesus. Will Jesus shape your moral choices, his truth, his gospel, his word, or will your culture shape those choices? I hope you see that sex is not something that you should avoid because it's evil or it's bad. No, it's actually beautiful and it's good when it happens in the context of a covenant of marriage. That is what a Jesus follower believes. Period. So if you are a single person in a relationship where sexual sin has been a part, then Jesus, for your own good, implores you to repent, to turn away from that sin. And and when you do, he'll forgive you. And he will bless you 
bless you in terms of his relationship with you, bless you in terms of relationships with other people. He wants you to walk with him in obedience and trust. And when you do so, you will grow. You will flourish. Friends, if if you're having sex with someone who doesn't want to make a covenant with you, you are perverting the very meaning of the thing you are doing and you will eventually be hurt. I, I promise you that's true. You will eventually be hurt and you will also hurt the person with whom you're having sex whether they ever know that or not, you will be hurting them. You should tell that person that you are sorry for having compromised yourself. You are sorry for not obeying Jesus. You are moving forward. You are determined to do exactly that, obey Jesus. And I would challenge you, be willing to risk that relationship more than you're willing to risk the relationship with Jesus. One more thing, lust. We've talked about adultery. We've talked about fornication. We'll talk about lust. Of course, this is another situation where Jesus one day sort of blew up all of the conventional thinking around this. We read this passage earlier. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, if you shall not commit, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying that the battle for sexual Purity is fought primarily here in in our heads, or in other words, where we think and how we feel with our heart. The truth is all of us notice attractive men or women. All of us have normal, non-sinful attractions for certain members of the opposite sex. That's not lust. It's not the first look that's the problem. It's the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth that turns into sexual fantasy. Those things are lust. The mind that constantly fantasizes or schemes or seduces or undresses, that is the mind that is desperately in need of renewal. Now, some of you can say this morning that you have never committed adultery. You've never fornicated outside of marriage. What about this one? What about this one? Here's the thing. Jesus says that lust and adultery have the same root, just like murder and anger. Lust and adultery have the same root. The root is a broken, selfish, sin-filled, lonely, empty heart. And who of us doesn't need to grow in this area? You know, if you watch certain movies, if you frequent certain uh, websites, if you watch porn, you'll have images burned into your mind that will incessantly stoke the fires of lust. And when that happens, friends, that becomes enslaving and all-consuming. What it doesn't become and never will become is satisfying. You will just want more and more and more and more. And you will inevitably want Jesus less and less and less. God wants all of us to be free from that kind of bondage. Free to think pure thoughts, free to worship without guilt or without hiding, without pretending, free to love and be faithful to God, love and be faithful to his spouse. God wants us to be around people, to be in healthy relationships without lust dogging all of our thoughts. 
And to get there, you know, we, we do with this sin what we do with all sins. We repent. We need to take steps to separate ourselves from things and situations that tempt us to sin. We might even need to confide to a brother or to a sister what's going on in our lives, asking them to pray for us, asking them to hold us accountable. We might even need to talk to a counselor to break cycles of this kind of thing happening in our lives. But we need to know that God wants us to be free from this kind of thing, not to live in bondage to it. Now, I'm done, okay? Happy Mother's Day. You know, in closing, I just want to say this. God loves you. The seventh commandment is an expression of that love for you. You break it and you will begin the slow, steady process of disintegration spiritually, relationally, and morally. You will come apart at the seams, friends. You keep this command, which means, you know, you wrestle, you know, to keep it. You, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to obey this command, you know, no adultery, no fornication. I'm going to battle lust and I'm going to try to do it in healthy ways. You do that and you'll be free to relate to others the way God intended you to relate to them. In ways that bless you and bless them. In ways where if you were to describe your life, you would say, you know what? My life because of people and in particular because of my spouse, my my. My life feels fruitful. It feels abundant. That's what God wants for you and for me, for us. Now, I want to end uh, this message with a passage that I just think is very encouraging because some of this kinds of stuff, because of the degree to which we give ourselves oftentimes to sexual sin, uh, it, it very much, uh, very often feels uh, to people who are there in that, like they're just enslaved to it. How can they break out? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some hope. And again, I would challenge you, if you're there, if that's you, and, and you, you just feel enslaved to some aspect, or you're in an adulterous relationship and you want to get out, I mean, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to someone here at the church. Let us come alongside and help. The Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not alone in this. You're not unique in your temptations. God is faithful. (laughs) Underline that, highlight that, circle that in red. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the seventh commandment. We just confess to you, God, uh, so many of us in this room have broken this commandment in so many different ways. Uh, it, it's, we are thankful that you are faithful when we are not. We are thankful that we can cry out to you for help and you will give help. We are thankful that we have each other, friends, spouses, loved ones who would come alongside 
us and, and help us break the bondage that, that some may be experiencing to, to some of these sins. And God, we're thankful for the hope, <laughs> your redemption, which gives us hope, which leads us to believe that there is a path forward to a place of change and a place of health and a, a place where we can be more and think more and act more like Jesus. Thank you, God, for meeting us here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.